Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up this hour, many restaurants continue to struggle. The cost of food and labor has gone up. Some have been unable to keep their doors open. Still, other entrepreneurs are taking the plunge. We'll learn about a Springfield effort to help minority business owners. Also, football is not just for boys. In fact, flag football for high school girls is becoming more popular. We'll have a report. Right-wing publications are showing up in more communities. They look like your typical newspaper, but as we'll hear, things are not always what they seem. You get these glaring headlines of what's so terrible about our tax system right now or what's bad about a Democratic governor. And a record store is observing an anniversary, Weird Heralds, celebrating a half century of keeping it weird. We've got those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up this hour, we'll hear about newspapers being sent to residents, but are they really what they seem? Technology could soon bring us driverless tractors. How do farmers feel about that? And a record store is about to celebrate a big anniversary. More on its history. That and more this hour on Statewide. The pandemic forced some restaurants to close permanently, but for many that weathered that period, they're dealing with other challenges that continue to slow the path to recovery. Jade Aubrey brings us that story. Angie Kiefner wanted to get into the restaurant business. It runs in her family. Her father was an owner of Bachman and Kiefner, a pharmacy and lunch counter that was a staple in downtown Springfield for decades. Seven years ago, Angie opened Kiefner's with recipes and items from her father's business. She was able to keep it going during the pandemic shutdown. The price of food and utilities began going way up, and so did the cost of staffing. I went from paying some people $14 an hour all the way up to 16 to $17 an hour because the competition out there was willing to pay them that much. So, and eventually minimum wage is going to be $15, so you can't pay your cook $15 and pay your dishwasher the same because they have different responsibilities. Angie had to make a tough decision, and this summer she closed the doors. She says she was grateful to have had good staff, but thinks many other restaurants aren't so lucky. That's the main problem with any restaurant is getting good, not just getting staff, but getting good staff that actually care and that actually have good work ethics and show up to work every day. And in order to have great service and great food, you have to hire the best. And I did have a really good staff. I just couldn't afford them. It's a familiar story that Sam Toya has been hearing. He's president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association, which represents establishments in the state. We also know a majority of Illinois operators say their costs are higher now than they were before the pandemic. 92% of operators say their total food and beverage costs are higher than 2019. And 94% of operators say their total labor costs are higher than 2019. Restaurants are among the most reviewed businesses online. A bad experience, such as long wait times or poor service, can impact the bottom line. Raising the pay and covering other costs can force higher menu prices, which often means less business. Toya says many restaurants also went into debt to survive during the pandemic limitations on indoor dining. Add it all up, and he says the trickle-down effect makes it even harder to succeed. A lot of restaurants that used to stay open at 11 o'clock are closing at 9. Restaurants that stood open to 12 o'clock are closing at 10. So they're reducing their hours, which then reduces their gross sales, which then reduces their bottom line profit. Toya says more than 40 percent of restaurant owners now say the business conditions are worse than three months ago, and a majority are pessimistic things will change soon. Still, there are those who are following their dream. 
Dustin Coons is a new owner but experienced in the restaurant industry. He launched Legacy Point Eatery in Springfield in September. Having spent years as a chef, he decided to take the plunge. You know, it's every chef's dream to own their own space, come across an opportunity to rent a space that was mostly turnkey. So this was kind of set up, seemed like a perfect opportunity for me, so I seized it. Coons was ready for the obvious question of why now, with so many headwinds. I hate to answer you with a quote from something else, but a long time ago in a song lyric, what better place than here, what better time than now. The personal reasons, mostly. I'm as old as I've ever been and as young as I'll ever be again. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm not going to wake up one day too old to do it and wonder what if I had done it. The economy is ever-changing, and if you sit around and wait till there's a perfect time, you'll find yourself waiting forever. There's never a perfect time for anything. Just got to kind of jump in there and do it. Still, finding and keeping help is a challenge. One survey showed restaurant turnover at about 140 percent. Many restaurant workers say they view the jobs as stepping stones instead of careers. Kuhn says there has definitely been a shift. I think a lot of what has changed from the pandemic is the fear of being jobless has gone from people. Years ago, and I remember beginning one of the other restaurants, and we had like a line basically of employees waiting to come in. If one of the employees wasn't working out, we politely let them go, and we had someone very quickly to fill their space. However, what we're seeing these days is people being more selective about where they work. I'm Jade Aubrey. Researchers are studying how virtual court hearings could slow eviction proceedings. Matt Mettler at the University of Illinois Institute of Government and Public Affairs says courts across the country are backlogged with eviction cases as moratoriums have lifted. He says eviction proceedings can benefit greatly by having the two parties in the same room. Moving them online and having some expectation where lawyers could talk and, and come to some kind of agreements is, is not easy. Um, and if you had to do breakout rooms for every single you know pair of attorneys that are doing evictions, the timing of it would take a lot longer. Some courtrooms reopened for in-person hearings by the time eviction filings resumed, but many other courts across the country did not. Girls flag football is taking off. A high school league started last year with 22 schools and has now grown to 50 with many new teams at Chicago's public schools. Nareda Marino caught up with some of the varsity athletes playing this season. Sophie Rush, Ivy Middle linebacker, Allie Purple linebacker. The sky is pitch black on a recent Tuesday morning at Lane Tech High School on Chicago's north side. It's 6 a.m. While most students sleep, the girls' flag football team meets for practice. It's their first year in the league, and they plan to dominate. Coached a lot of teams, and there's just something, something special about being the first and kind of having something to prove. Like, this isn't a boys' sport. Like, girls can play too. That's Coach Caroline Schwartz. She played in college and volunteered to form a team at Lane. The league is expanding this year with about 30 new teams in Chicago, Rockford, and the western suburbs. It's tough getting up that early, but I don't know, we're having a good time and we're winning so far, so it's just, it's very fun. Senior Marissa Yuli is a captain and a quarterback this season. As she takes a break from leading a scrimmage, Marissa says she plans to become an engineer one day. But she also loves football and hopes to continue playing after high school. I don't know, like a club team or something to play flag football because that'd be really cool. I'll help you. <laughs> Coach Caroline says there are opportunities for young women to play after graduation at the club and intramural levels. But that doesn't mean everyone knows girls can play football. Pretty funny, our very first game, uh, they wore their brand new, amazing looking Nike jerseys to school. 
and a couple girls said that people were coming up to them and asking if they had boyfriends on the football team. <laughs> but for the most part, people have been supportive. Over on the south side, the girls at Back of the Yards High School are training to defend their title. They were crowned city champions after beating Prosser in the finals last year. We always have this saying about being confident but not too overconfident. That's Brenda Macias, a captain on the team. Yes, I was here last year for the inaugural season. So you're part of the winning team? Yes. That was very exciting. We all started like from scratch. We didn't know anything at all. We bonded well with the team and we got as far as city champs. Some people have a hard time believing the petite senior really plays football. They're like, you mean soccer? And I'm like, no, I mean like football, you know? Obviously not, not the tackling, but yeah, they're like still kind of shocked. The girls practice after school in the muggy Chicago heat. On most days, they share a field with a boys soccer team. Conditions are not ideal, but Coach Alicia Maxwell says they make it work. It's at 10 degrees hotter on the turf, so it's like almost 100 degrees, and we're out here. One thing they don't have to worry about is equipment. Last year, CPS teamed up with the Bears, the National Football League, and Nike to provide free cleats, helmets, and uniforms for the girls. I feel like if we didn't have that support from Nike and from the Bears, we probably wouldn't have had a team last year. The girls work hard, but try to keep things light on the field. They crack jokes between drills on hand-eye coordination, and they cheer each other on in Spanish and English. Coach Maxwell is careful to protect that joy. She's already turned down several requests to scrimmage with other teams outside of official games. The last thing they need is to feel more pressure. I don't want teams trying to get in their head. I'm going to get my girls the practice they need, and you know maybe we'll play Lane Tech in October after the regular season. As reigning champions, they know there's a target on their back, so they do their best to drown out the noise. Because obviously, it's not all about flag football. It's about like life, how you treat other people, and how you like treat yourself. They may not end up going pro, but the girls are determined to have fun. Nereida Moreno, WBEZ News. Music has changed through the years, and so has the way we buy and listen to it. But one constant has been a record shop in downtown Burlington in southeast Iowa. Rich Egger tells us more. Harold's weird, but he ain't strange, and music is the name of his game. Sound machines that you... Oh, I just messed it up. We'll have to start that again, Rich, I think. Jordan Garniopst says back in the day, Weird Harold had an earworm of a radio jingle. He's struggling to remember it. Harold's weird, but he ain't strange. Music is the name of his game. Sound machines that you love, fudge. <laughs> Darn Yopes was born and raised in Burlington. He says he's been going to Weird Harold's for about as long as he can remember. He bought his very first album at Weird Harold's. Yeah, it was Alice Cooper's School's Out. says he played it every day as loud as his little stereo would go. Garniopes now lives in Macomb in western Illinois, but he still goes back to Burlington to visit family. And when he does, more likely than not, he'll stop by Weird Heralds. It's just important to me that, you know, every town should have a record store. And it's been there it's my whole life, and I'll continue to buy from there. Weird Heralds opened in 1972, a time when the likes of David Bowie, the Rolling Stones, and Stevie Wonder ruled the music charts. You are the sunshine. 
Bassine has always been around Weird Heralds. He's the original owner. He says he started out selling 8-track tapes because only one other store in town was selling them. He also had some vinyl. Sales of vinyl grew, and he later started selling cassettes. Eventually, 8-tracks went by the wayside. Interestingly enough, Danny says he was not a huge music fan when he started Weird Heralds. No, not at all. Uh, I was just an entrepreneur looking for a business, and I felt that this was the business that we needed in this town. Danny says he became a big music fan over time. He especially enjoys some of the classic rock acts. More than 20 years on, a new kid walked into the store. I was 16 and I needed a job and I was hired <laughs> and I've never left. <laughs> yeah. Andrea Fritz says that was in 1994. She says she was not any more of a music fan than any other teen, but over the years she's developed a passion for music and especially likes acts such as Johnny Lang, Tommy Castro, and Prince. We are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Andrea says she stayed at Weird Heralds all these years because it never felt like a job. And in 2019, she bought the store from Danny. She is now the owner, and I just kind of uh, come in and help out. <laughs> do a little bookwork and don't, don't do a lot of labor, but just bookwork and that kind of stuff, yeah. So you went from owner to the hired help. Right, exactly. <laughs> We switch roles. Everything's different, but everything's still the same kind of situation. Of course, there have been challenges through the years. For example, they closed for about six weeks at the beginning of the pandemic. Even though the building itself was closed, Andrea says she was still showing up to fill out orders for their eBay store. And I would see people come to the door and, you know, if they wanted something, I'd go get it for them and sell it to them and take it to the door to them. So, yeah. And then we sold a lot online and, yeah. Yeah kept our correctional facility orders flowing. You heard that right, correctional facility orders. Early one morning, I was all locked up in jail. Danny says they've been doing this for probably close to 30 years. Weird Herald sells music to prisons all around Iowa, Nebraska, and other states. He says it was not something they set out to do. He says the prison system approached them. It started with the Iowa State Prison in nearby Fort Madison. At that time, it was cassettes. Uh, they were only allowed to get cassettes, and they were at that time, they were buying them from a store down in Fort Madison, and that store went out of business, so they started looking around for somebody else to take over, and that's when we took over. He says it's become a big part of the business. They send out CDs to prisons every day. But in general, Weird Heralds today sells 10 vinyl records for every CD. And in an era of downloading music, Andrea says there's a difference between someone who just listens to music and someone who loves music. She says a music listener might hear a song and download it if they like it enough. But a music lover loves a band, loves an artist. They can tell you everything about it. They know all the words to all the songs. They collect everything. They go to the shows. They, you know, they know the band member. They know the triangle player in the, in the touring band. They know all that. And we know that every day, year by year, the business has kept moving along like the needle in a record groove. Now Andrea and Danny are working on plans for a 50th anniversary celebration on Saturday, November 19th. Danny says one thing has held true through all this time. Still weird after all these years, yeah. 
Harold's weird, but he ain't strange, and music is the name of his game. Sound machines that you'd love to find in record... Oh. <sighs> Jordan Garniopst is still trying to remember the radio jingle, and he is still a big fan of Weird Harold's. He does go to record stores in other communities, but finds himself coming back to that shop in downtown Burlington. I don't know. It's been around almost 50 years. Almost, what, 50 years in November? How can you not support something like that? Garniopst says it's rare and amazing to see a record store last this long. So what about that name, Weird Heralds? Where does that come from? Well, Danny says Weird Herald was one of the characters from the Fat Albert cartoon. Danny wanted something original that people would remember. He says Danny's record shop was not a memorable name. And so Weird Heralds it is. Still weird after all these years. Rich Egger reporting. Harold's weird, but he ain't strange, and music is the name of his game. Sound machines that'll blow your mind and record deals that you love to find. I said, weird, Harold's. That's it. That's, that's, I think that might be a, a wrap on that one, buddy. Still ahead on statewide, millions of Americans could lose the right to sue when state agencies don't provide services that people are entitled to. We'll have more on that just ahead. Welcome back to Statewide, I'm Sean Crawford. People enrolled in federally funded programs like Medicaid and SNAP can sue states if they don't receive the services they're entitled to, but that right to sue could be stripped away, depending on how the Supreme Court rules on a case out of Indiana. For Side Effects Public Media, Farah Yusri reports. Okay, here we go. It's a short 10-minute drive from Susie Tolevsky's home in northwest Indiana. Well, this is beautiful, lovely Valparaiso, Indiana. To the Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation Facility. It's an unassuming one-story building, but it's at the heart of a monumental Supreme Court case, a case that's partly named after Susie's family, Tolevsky. I don't even like going up there to pass by that nursing home because it, you know, reminds me (laughs) of all the troubles. Um, So I have very bad memories of that nursing home. Bad memories because that's where her dad resided to get 24-7 care for his dementia. But she claims the nursing home abused him and violated his rights. He went from being able to walk and talk and, you know, he's very, you know, active, you know, um, to not being able to move. Court filings say the nursing home over-medicated him to keep him asleep and involuntarily transferred him to other facilities. Tolevsky sued the Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County, the public health agency that owns the nursing facility. The agency denies any wrongdoing and tried to dismiss the case, saying Tolevsky didn't have the right to sue, and it lost. Federal courts said the lawsuit could move forward. So the public health agency made an unexpected move. It took the case to the nation's highest court and posed a sweeping question. Whether... People who depend on Medicaid can turn to the courts if state officials violate their rights. That's Sarah Rosenbaum, a professor of health law and policy at George Washington University. She was shocked the Supreme Court agreed to hear this case because it's not just questioning the right of the Talevskis or any nursing home resident to take states to court. It's questioning the fundamental right of tens of millions of Americans on federal assistance programs like Medicaid to sue states. 
For decades, Medicaid beneficiaries have sued states to get access to entitlements like expensive but life-saving medications, dental care coverage for children, and home health services for people with disabilities. Rosenbaum says if the Supreme Court sides with the Indiana agency... Suddenly you have a situation where there will be no consequences, literally no consequences if a state misbehaves. The Indiana agency has found allies in a number of conservative groups and Republican attorneys general around the country. That includes the legal nonprofit Alliance Defending Freedom. Attorney Chris Chandeville says programs like Medicaid, where money flows from the federal government to states, have terms that both parties agree to follow. Our basic position is uh, that it really should be up to the parties themselves, the federal government and the individual states, to decide whether each side of that agreement is holding up their end of the deal uh, instead of allowing third parties to come in and file a lawsuit. He argues people who fail to receive benefits they're entitled to can complain to the state. Other legal experts say the problem with this argument is there's no incentive for states to hold themselves accountable unless the federal government gets involved. But former federal health officials say resources are stretched so thin that it's nearly impossible for them to investigate and police every state. Lawsuits help them do that. Attorney Jane Perkins at the National Health Law Program says a complaint to the state typically only benefits one person. Lawsuits can help thousands at once. She says if such cases are no longer possible... Catastrophic. It would leave these programs really standing out there without an enforcement, true enforcement mechanism. The Indiana agency is under intense pressure from state lawmakers and patient advocates to withdraw its case. But even if it does, legal experts say it might be too late. Now that the Supreme Court has shown interest in looking at such a sweeping question, there's a good chance it could pick up the next case that traces it. I'm Farah Yusri, Side Effects Public Media. Scientists with the National Great Rivers Research and Education Center will be studying streams and wetlands in central and southern Illinois over the next two years. The study will be focused on dragonflies and damselflies, but the research could show a bigger trend in water quality. Zach Boblett discusses the study with terrestrial wildlife ecologist Dr. John Crawford. So how many studies are you generally working on at one time? I've got probably eight or nine funded projects going on. Um, So the I run the wildlife ecology program at INGREC, so that's National Great Rivers Research and Education Center. Um, So I'm one of uh, five senior scientists there. My program focuses in two primary areas. The first is threatened, endangered, and species of conservation concern. And that's mostly lower vertebrate work, so amphibians, reptiles, done a little bit of fish work um, as well. And then the second major part of it is wetlands ecology. Um, So I've been working on the efficacy of created and restored um, ephemeral wetlands in the Midwest for, oh man, better part of 15 years now. So when you mention those wetlands, what are people in central and southern Illinois looking at? So these are these are things that people would overlook. So they're basically mud puddles to a lot of people. Uh, so they'd be the size of a bedroom in some instances. Um, all of these, what we call, we call them ephemeral or vernal, they're temporary, which means that they fill every, you know, every year, but then they'll dry down. And that's important because it prevents the establishment of fish. 
fish and amphibians don't coexist well together because the fish eat up the eggs and the tadpoles and things like that. But the ephemeral wetlands, the vernal wetlands, are so small, they don't receive regulatory protection under the Clean Water Act uh, because they're too small. And so it's left up to the states and states largely don't protect them either. The problem with that is that historically, when you looked at a watershed, those smallest wetlands, these ephemeral wetlands, basically would have been functioning as the kidneys of a watershed. So they are involved in the filtration of water. So that water that's going down into ground sources, groundwater sources that then becomes drinking water, um, preventing mass flooding events and runoff and, and all that good kind of stuff. Um, in addition to being wildly biologic, biologically productive. So yeah, I've been working on, on that particular component for, yeah, quite some time. So really everything I do revolves around this idea of um, conservation and applied ecology, coming up with uh, information that land managers and uh, resource managers can use to better manage populations, to better rehab um, habitat, uh, to make it more suitable for those animals, and then provide uh, services for humans um, in terms of those ecosystem services. And again, when we think about clean water, clean drinking water, what have you. When it comes to this dragonfly and damselfly research, how does that relate to the filtration of water and how does that relate to folks in the communities? Sure. So the, the way I got involved with uh, damselflies and dragonflies is they're really similar to amphibians in that they're very good indicators of wetland health, uh, water quality health. And so testing water quality um, is super important, but it's also very expensive. And so to take a first pass at wetland quality, water quality um, in watersheds, you can use surrogates. And those two surrogates, uh, we, we refer to those, those are different taxa, are the damselfly dragonflies and the amphibians. Um, and so I've been working on amphibians for um, more than 20 years. And so I've started to dabble in damselfly and dragonflies because of that fact, because the question becomes, well, if, if I'm, I'm really interested in water quality and, and protecting watershed health, will I get the same answer from damselflies and dragonflies that I do amphibians? And so if you're getting that same answer with multiple groups of organisms, whether it's good or bad, you have more confidence in that particular answer. So this is basically a piece of a bigger puzzle that you're studying? Correct. Um, everything that most everything we do at, at NGREC um, revolves around this idea of water quality, watershed health. Um, we're really all interested in providing um, timely information to the public. More importantly, um, strategies, mitigation strategies, restoration strategies, things that people can use, right? Because understanding a problem is only part of a problem. And the second part of that is coming up with solutions. Um, and, and that's what, what this kind of work aims to do. And, and so we, again, as I mentioned, we try to provide this information to a, a myriad of different sources, whether they'd be uh, state or federal. And then it that includes then making this information to politicians. You know, our ultimate goal is to inform policy decisions. And so we don't, we don't seek to influence anything we simply seek to inform and so provide that information um, for decision makers. And that's where the dragonflies and damselflies kind of fit into this small small piece of a, a larger uh, overall uh, project at NGREC. And, and again, that relates to this watershed health 
that I've mentioned before. So the watershed health we mentioned affecting the filtration, then that would obviously affect agriculture as well as that would affect Illinois economically, along with affecting in an ecological sense, correct? Correct. And so, you know, one of the the things that sometimes people, I think, get a little bit lost with is that um, folks in my world that are working in ecology and conservation, um, we don't view agriculture as the enemy. We think that there are sustainable ways that we can have both agriculture that meets the needs of, of society as a whole, but do it in a way that also protects human health, wildlife health, water quality. And so that's what we're really interested in is, is working to provide those types of solutions. Because in the grand scheme of things, whether it's, you know, row crop agriculture or timber harvesting, what have you, those things aren't going to stop, nor should they. Uh, they're, they're vital components of, of human society as a whole. But the flip side of that is doing things in a responsible manner that we're also protecting human health. And we're, we're, we're looking out for sometimes people that don't have voices in, in those conversations. How specifically do the damselflies and dragonflies act as a surrogate? So, and again, I tie them back to amphibians. They're, they're two unique taxa. And the reason they are is because they're dependent on both the aquatic habitat and the terrestrial habitat. They're dependent upon the aquatic habitat for breeding and larval development. So they're developing in that water. And so they become a reflection of the water quality. But then they transform. And so we think when you think of damselflies and dragonflies, you think of those pretty critters that are flying around ponds and streams. But they have a larval form um, that can range anywhere from six months to three years. So they are immersed in that water for a period of time. So they're going to experience what's coming into that water. At some point, they'll transform into the adult form. And the adults are dependent upon that surrounding terrestrial habitat. And so ultimately, Again, whether we're thinking about it in terms of amphibians or, or damselflies and dragonflies or water quality in general, one of the things I try to impress upon people, um, when you hear the word wetland, the thing that I always tell people is the most, impart, most important part of the word wetland is land. And that's because the water is a reflection of the terrestrial environment. The Dragonfly and Damselfly study started in 2021. The research is funded by the state's wildlife grant program. Autonomous vehicles that drive themselves, seemingly with a mind of their own, may come to farm fields long before they're common on roadways. John Deere has announced its plans to develop autonomous tractors that can take on many of the duties of growing crops no farmer needed. From Harvest Public Media, Jonathan All reports the idea is being met with equal parts excitement, skepticism, and fear. Earlier this year at the Consumer Electronics Show, farm equipment manufacturer John Deere unveiled plans to have fully autonomous tractors and other farm implements on the market and in the fields by 2030. The company's presentation included a video featuring Minnesota farmer Doug Nims praising the prototype he used on his 2,000-acre corn and soybean farm. I think the tractor can do a better job than I can do. Autonomy, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a life changer for me. Deere contends a tough labor market for ag workers, wanting to free up farmers' time to do more important things, and better farming are the goals of their efforts. I'd say we've been chipping away at autonomy for the last 
20 plus years, really. Ryan Jarden is in charge of marketing large tractors at Deer. He says the equipment his company is developing can not only run day and night without an operator on board, but can also plant, plow, and apply fertilizer more accurately and efficiently. It automates not only the driving function, but basically every decision point that, that that operator would have made. So, and that can include things like adjusting the tillage tool depth or um, steering around an obstacle, things like that. While Deer made a big splash at CES, there aren't a lot of details on an exact time frame on when the machines will be available. And Jarden says that's on purpose. He says this slow rollout is designed to give farmers a chance to process the idea and the reaction is mixed. I couldn't do it, but then again, I'm past 60. I, I can't see it. Dave Busby has a small livestock and vegetable farm in central Missouri. He's having lunch in a local restaurant after spending all morning on his low-tech tractor. He says he doesn't like the idea of sending out a machine to do the work for him. There's nothing more appealing to me than to go out almost in the spring. If you plow your ground, that smell that comes up, that first spring plow, or to get out there and have your hands on what you're doing out there. To me, that will always be what real farming is. Younger farmers may be more amenable to the idea. Chris Otten farms 1,400 acres of corn and soybeans in southern Illinois. An easier, high-tech way of farming may be more attractive to the younger generation, like his eight-year-old son. But he also says technology can't farm by itself. And to trust the fact that it's going to work correctly all the time, uh, and be able to sit behind a computer screen, I think that would ruin agriculture, and I think we would see a huge issue in our food supply if we went completely that way. You can do that to a certain degree, but again, there's going to have to be a balance point of where does that stop. Otten says as long as autonomous tractors are being set up and run by a farmer who's invested in the land and not by a corporation's technician miles or even states away, it could be a good thing. Others say autonomous tractors could be good for the environment, by increasing efficiency. Rob Myers is the director of regenerative agriculture at the University of Missouri. He says that could mean reduced use of fuel, fertilizers, and pesticides. They will have an impact in terms of gathering more data that may lead to a higher use of precision application, different seeding rates, different fertilizers, maybe even planting different varieties in places. Even with autonomous tractors, Myers says farms need farmers. Farmers have plenty to do, not just driving tractors, so I think they will keep busy with other things if, if the tractors are autonomous, but we'll, we'll see. While Deere and some other manufacturers are moving quickly toward automation, there are barriers that will shut out many farmers, namely the price tag. While Deere is not releasing information on how much these tractors will cost, industry insiders routinely throw around figures of well over a half a million dollars. I'm Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. We've got more ahead on Statewide. We'll take a look at newspapers that could be showing up in your mailboxes, but are they really what they seem? That story and more on the way. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Illinois residents have been receiving newspapers they've not paid for or in many cases even heard of. Each bears the tagline, Real Data, Real News, so they say. These are partisan news outlets taking advantage of the erosion of local news coverage. And NPR's David Fulkenflick tells us they are part of a nationwide phenomenon. Before his retirement, Bernard Schoenberg reported about the origins of these papers as a columnist for the Springfield State Journal-Register. 
There are more than 30 publications, most of them online, but some of them during this election season, going to people's mailboxes. Schoenberg was a journalist in Illinois for his entire 44-year career. Newsrooms throughout the state have withered, including his. Some have shut down. These newer publications lie dormant, then they spring up at election time. They sure look like old-fashioned local broadsheet newspapers, nothing flashy, but they've got color photos and charts. So you get these glaring headlines of what's so terrible about our tax system right now or what's bad about a Democratic governor. The coverage all points in a single direction, hard right. The top headline on the West Cook News right here, it's going to be literally the end of days. That piece hammered Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker up for re-election. This is Republican propaganda and in some instances just outright lies. That's Pritzker campaign spokeswoman Natalie Edelstein. The information being presented is, you know, intentionally set up to mislead people. It looks like it's independent local news. But in reality, when you read the content, it's playing on people's emotions and fear and trying to, you know, scare people. Crime fears, trans rights, COVID policies, all hot-button issues punched by Pritzker's Republican opponent. Here he is, State Senator Darren Bailey. These uh, newspapers that are circulating the state that are full of facts and truth, and Governor Pritzker has the gall to call it a lie. Bailey was speaking there to Chicago talk show host Dan Proft. Proft's political action committee has spent millions to aid Bailey, and he subsidizes the papers. Proft told NewsNation TV his readers don't trust mainstream news organizations. We provide angles to stories and information that you don't get from left-leaning or left or not-so-leaning, just hard-left news outlets. They're all sharing a brain, and we're providing a different perspective on some of the issues that are salient in people's lives. Retired reporter Bernie Schoenberg says the nod at salience is deceptive. There is other information in the publication that makes it look local, like what employees in government agencies are making a lot of money, or what houses sold for a lot of money. And it's just things that you can pick up off the internet. And they use bots to do it. I haven't been able to reach a single reporter from the Illinois papers. Consider Kane County reporters Lori A. Lubert. Fifteen years ago, a reporter at the Virginian Pilot had the same name. Lubert has no account on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Unusual for a reporter. Lori, if you're out there, call me. Love to hear from you. Now, for those who say that new publications arise from backers on both sides, well, you've got a point. I mean, if we are to be completely blunt about it, we are seeing folks on the left adopt this tactic as well now. Pri Bengani is a senior research fellow at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. She says one key difference is scale. And her new report tracks the backers of a closely linked network of conservative papers. She counts 64 such pro-democratic newspapers and news sites around the country, compared to more than 1,200 right-wing outlets that form a vast echo chamber. You end up with this surround sound effect where if people are hearing the same things in multiple places, are they then more likely to believe it? Bengani says she can't measure how influential this echo chamber will prove to be. But she says these partisan papers are blanketing people who want to read local news and have fewer choices than ever to do so. David Folkenflik, NPR News. A deepening squabble is leaving the fate of valuable Abraham Lincoln artifacts up in the air. Dave McKinney brings us that story. For 15 years, the Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield has displayed Mary Todd Lincoln's blood-stained fan and the 16th president's gloves from the night of his assassination. 
But Monday, in a stunning development, those and more than 1,500 other Lincoln items were trucked out of the museum with no plans for their return. A foundation owns the collection, and its vice chair, Nick Com, says the move happened because a long-standing agreement to house the artifacts at the museum expired. We don't have any plans at this point in terms of of what we're going to do with the artifacts. The Lincoln Presidential Foundation and the state-run museum have fought for years over financial transparency. The foundation is still struggling to retire debt from acquiring the collection, which now stands at more than $8 million. This is Dave McKinney. For the past 26 years, the Springfield Project has been a driver of community and business development through youth employment and a microloan program. Its latest endeavor, an innovation hub called CAP 1908, is a co-working space aimed at helping minority entrepreneurs grow their business in the Southtown neighborhood of Springfield's east side. Nika Schoonover spoke with the executive director, Dominic Watson, about what the space will do and his future plans for the project. If 2020 taught us anything is there is a separation between those who could and those who could not, and those who had opportunities and those who didn't. Um, we think everyone started to understand business, community, and government started to understand, hey, we can't continue to do things the same. And so, you know, there became clear opportunities for the Springfield Project, the Springfield Black Chamber of Commerce, and other groups to really step in and say, look, we're going to champion, you know, this, um, this equity issue. We're going to start um, highlighting in a, a more aggressive way the services that we're, that we're offering. Hey, we're going to come in and we're going to do something about the lack of investment on the east side. We're going to create this hub, you know, we're going to advance this conversation. And so fast forward, you know, now fall 2022, we're able to open the social innovation center that will service, you know, the entire east side population and the entire community um, and those who are willing to, to patronize. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then can you talk a little bit more specifically about what the space will be and what it does? Yeah, so I always um, like to say that this is a centralizing of resources. And um, Social Innovation Center or Innovation Center will have, will have various uh, workforce development programming, we'll have youth development, there'll be um, a high sense of uh, community programming that we'll incorporate into the day-to-day -day activities. We were fortunate enough to receive um, a lot of support from the state of Illinois, the city of Springfield, as well as community partners um, to, to really centralize this location and put it, um, put it back in, in the community that really needs it. Maybe speak to how the work that you're doing here with this project and with helping minority business owners, how that really uh, applies to your personal passions, your personal goals. Yes, you know, so at 22, um, I started my own business as, um, as an event planner and, um, and, and marketing um, and promoter. Um, I, I wanted to bring diverse alternatives um, to Springfield that would, um, that would rival the club and bar scene. And so I started off, um, was, was fortunate enough to receive an opportunity to start with Poetry Nights. Um, I grew up um, in, in a performing arts household. Um, my, my mother really championed performing arts, um, you know, even in church. You know, I was fortunate enough to where I sang in the church choir. Um, poetry was a passion of mine, creative writing, et cetera. And um, this was, you know, just kind of an opportunity to give back. And my mother, you know, was a business owner. 
um, who you know, was just super passionate about the community. Um, as a former Black Panther, she grew up in East St. Louis, which was um, under-resourced, still is to this day. And so um, she moved us here for better opportunities, became a business owner, was successful in being a business owner, and I grew up in that. And she also became very active in labor um, through, her, through her union. Um, that's now um, SEIU Healthcare. Um, she just became, you know, she just grow, grew into this person who, who was very, very um, strategic in, in how she placed her kids in, in, in the community. And I received, um, again, being fortunate enough, my mom as a business owner, she paid our way through, um, through private school and, um, and she really gave me the, uh, the roots in, in the community and the passion to really serve. And so, you know, fast forward at 22, I was, for, I got the opportunity to, to put together the poetry nights. And, um, and from there, it went from poetry nights to, um, to gospel shows, to, to college events. Um, and then it eventually it grew into me doing more cause focused and purpose driven programming. Um, and then it led me into learning how to mobilize people around community issues, um, and which progressed into politics and now lobbying. Yeah, um, and you know, obviously that this kind of project involves a lot of working with the neighborhood and the community. Um, what has that been like? You know, to really been able to collaborate with all of the other people around you. Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely great. I think, um, you know, the only way we can accomplish anything um, and, and push the community forward is through collaboration and working together. And so, you know, at an early age, I was taught the importance of teamwork, you know, playing sports and even singing in the church choir and going to St. Patrick's, which is, you know, right here in our community, you know, not too far from this location, St. Patrick's Catholic School, you know. Um, taught me, it gave me the foundation um, to just understand the importance of teamwork and working with the community and not working against the community. And I think it's really important that you bring the community, um, or, or you bring the community along with you for the journey. In terms of future plans, when will the Innovation Hub be up and running? And then in terms of what other future plans you have for the next year, five years? Yeah, and so we're, we're already looking at 20 years from now. Um, you know, we, uh, along with my team, myself, along with my team, urban planning, um, legislative consultant, as well as programming um, coordinator, uh, we're already looking at what are we going to try to accomplish 20 years from now. And so the initial, the initial plan um, was really threefold. Um, one was, you know, establish the social innovation center um, that would service and provide resources for the greater community. Phase two of that, or the second component, was to establish next door this um, collaborative event space that will serve as um, art gallery offices, as well as a kitchen incubator. Um, we have a lot of cottage kitchen um, or culinary entrepreneurs um, who are doing doing great um, job of, of monetizing their kitchen, as, you know, using their kitchen as a, as a means to monetize and, and drive revenue. Again, we talked about business owners start, especially minority business owners, they start and, you know, oftentimes they start based off necessity. And so, and very, being cre very creative. And so my goal is to take those cottage kitchen or those um, kitchen entrepreneurs 
and give them the necessary tools to start to scale their business into a catering business, food truck, and ultimately a brick and mortar. And so, um, so that's, that's phase two. And then that would, be, that would include the Madison Furniture Store building, which is right next door here. And one of the things that we, we want to incorporate is, is a rooftop space. That way they can come in, put an event together and test, the, test their culinary skills um, and you know, just using entertainment as a vehicle to do so. And then the third, um, the third component, which I'm so much, so very excited about, um, it is the Performing Arts Center. Our goal is to to acquire the the old theater that's now the stained glass shop, and we're going to transform that and restore it into a performing arts theater, and that will give an opportunity for the the youth in the community to come in and and just learn you know, performing arts, visual arts, um, free of charge for the community. And then we'll have a after school program and a pre-K component that's driven by the arts. Mm-hmm. And that's all within the next 20 years? Well, that's, those goals are within the next five. Next five, okay. Yes, so all of those are various. And, and again, you know, we're looking at three to five years for, for most of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but our plan doesn't stop there. If you look, just you know, to the northeast corner right here, um, you see a neighborhood, a 49 square block neighborhood, that is um, that has very much, uh, very much so, a lot of opportunity for for redevelopment. And so our goal is to take our our neighborhood of hope plan is what it's called now. We're going to rebrand that and try to bring partners to the table to develop um, the 49 square blocks of, um, of opportunity um, just to the northeast in Southtown, the neighborhood. That's the Springfield Project's executive director, Dominic Watson, speaking with Nika Schoonover about the new CAP 1908 Innovation Hub opening in downtown Springfield. That's all the time we have for this episode of Statewide. Thanks for being with us. Join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Meanwhile, you can find all of our episodes. They're available at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. And also you can find our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. Remember, Election Day is Tuesday, November 8th. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations. Yeah.